Hi, you're listening to The Inoculation. If you read our last newsletter, you may have noticed a piece by the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is an initiative of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, named Deep in the Data Void, China's COVID-19 Disinformation Dominates Search Engine Results. This piece is just another example of how a propaganda narrative can start with posing a question or sowing some doubt. We know very little about the processes and their purposes. But what does the US need all these labs for? So we decided to go back to our interview with Dr. Alexander Harasimenko, who is a researcher at the Computational Propaganda Project at the Oxford Internet Institute. And he has written papers on misinformation distribution on Telegram and YouTube. He focuses on the actions of Russia, China, and other actors. Hello, and welcome to the Inoculation Podcast, where we explore the intersection of vaccine denial, technology, and politics in depth. Join me, Eva von Schaper, and my colleague, Diva Repitschkaita, as we comb through research to find out what you can do and what our governments can do to stop the spread of disinformation. We just want to take a minute to welcome our new listeners. Hello, and thank you for your interest. If you like our show, please tell your families, your coworkers, and your neighbors. That's right. If you know of someone who might enjoy this show, just pick up your phone, you know it's right next to you somewhere, and text them the link right now. We really need your help to get the word out about our show. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself first and about your research, just so that our listeners can get an idea of what you work on? I'm uh, Alexander Olesi Razimenka. I'm a researcher at Computational Propaganda Project at Oxford Internet Institute in the United Kingdom. This project I belong to studies many different areas that might be described as computational propaganda, things related to all type of conspiracy theories, attempts to influence and manipulate elections, uh, manipulate civil society, somehow spread disinformation, misinformation. And obviously one of the key questions many people are asking now, including people in the governments, in uh, NGOs, in uh, other types of organizations and institutions is how to make vaccination more successful story. And uh, that's why we've been researching all types of narratives, uh, doubt vaccination, success of vaccines, and uh, in general what we call well, anti-vaccination thinking. We have a number of research projects that try to understand, for instance, who spreads those narratives and thinking that can be described as anti-vaccination or anti-vax as it's been traditionally called, we look at both NGOs, prominent individuals, as well as foreign states, foreign authoritarian states that since recently or not recently uh, developed this habit of interfering in affairs of other countries in order to disrupt them, specifically focusing on narratives, for instance, that appear in, in, in state-backed or state-sponsored media organizations owned or controlled by Chinese and Russian governments in five languages, I believe. This one strand, another strand is understanding how anti-vaccination 
thinking spreads across social media. It's most currently one of the most rich information environments that many people used to get used to get information. That's what we're looking at. We also look at how those people who can be described as anti-vax leaders or anti-vax communities, how they make money, how they sustain themselves. And it all, of course, results in both research outputs as well as sort of recommendations. We also track most popular anti-vaccination narratives, anti-vaccination ideas that dominate this space. We also measure the volume, the audience, the engagement levels with that type of narratives over time, basically every day. Anti-vaccination thinking exists since vaccines emerged, but obviously this narrative has been re-enhanced and re-emerged on social media all the time. Especially in the US, there, uh, there is a lot of communities that advocate anti-vaccination thinking, and they might have been there for many years, decades, and then once internet emerged, they joined, they came, and uh, that's been since forever, <laughs> since 19th century. But on the internet, obviously, all types of people joined. Before summer 2020, there was almost no discussion of COVID-19 vaccination, except for one very big narrative related to the control in society, this idea, conspiracy theory that <laughs> vaccines being developed in order to chip everyone and in that way control everyone's minds. But I saw that, you know, earlier papers have to do with movements, with the social media and authoritarian states. So what was the entry point for you to start researching vaccines and health misinformation? Well, uh, yeah, indeed, I, I've been studying social movements for a long time, and I still study them. And in fact, I approach anti-vax communities or conspiracy theorist communities as social movements or as movements, not necessarily social, all types of movements. So organizations of people very loosely, very much organized according to the current sort of rules of organizing of uh, groups that emerge online mostly, exist online, never see each other very often. In that respect, they're very similar to less visible groups that, that exist in authoritarian states because some of the groups that spread misinformation, they try to avoid attention, they try to avoid sanctions and uh, all types of policies and laws that try to prevent the spread of misinformation. In that respect, they're similar. But when it comes to <laughs> vaccines, stories, yeah, we just realized that it's important to study this specific topic due to the COVID pandemic. If we look at states like, say, China or Russia who engage in misinformation, what is their goal? Ultimately, what do they want to achieve? In terms of China, China as a state, it's more interested in its own image across the globe, and it's not that much interested in spreading misinformation about what's happening, for instance, in Western Europe, United States, what they might be interested in is sometimes they spread misinformation about their own country or regions. They want to have some influence. For instance, recently they called the coup in Myanmar the radical reshuffle of the government. The radical reshuffle of the government when people have been imprisoned. It's very radical. What happens to Russia, obviously, it's more active on that stage and it's, it propagates certain narratives in many languages using media it controls, RT, Sputnik, TASS, and other outlets. And their goal, very often, is to spread disbelief in democratic systems, enhance and engage exactly those people who I mentioned, those people who might believe in misinformation, disinformation, who seek uh, answers to their grievances in conspiracy theories, 
And Russia found that it might be rewarding for its foreign policy to engage with this type of communities with more radical organizations, with more radical groups such as far-right groups or far-left groups. And it's been doing it something like that in relation maybe to far-left for a long time. As a, so- a Soviet Union, Russia believes continuation of Soviet Union, it looks like these days. But I think key goal of Russia and similar authoritarian, aggressive authoritarian countries is to spread disbelief and um, somehow damage democratic institutions and trust in democratic institutions in the West. For China, it is just to enhance its image using what it calls soft power and recently sharp power. So just looking at, let's call them pre-COVID times, have you ever seen anything similar regarding measles vaccines? Have you seen misinformation flowing from Russia to populist parties in Germany saying, for example, vaccination is bad? First, well, obviously, we're looking and focusing on COVID-19 anti-vax stories. We have colleagues who've been researching anti-vax thinking before COVID, and they say that, yes, indeed, there were narratives about Measles about other disease and the types of vaccines before COVID on social media, discussions of them. But it looked like they mostly emerged in the U.S. from the U.S. context. In terms of narratives we and communities, we didn't look beyond English-speaking countries. So Canada, Australia, U.S., their focus is U.K. And we found pre-COVID-19 communities, organizations that propagated anti-vax thinking in each of those countries, but most of them existed in the U.S. But over the recent years, this thinking been spreading further. They, uh, those communities became quite well established and they learned how to advance their thinking through entertainment products, such as films, the whole sequences of films about vaccination that filmed by those communities, entertainment products, books. There are many, many of them on Amazon available, for instance, for everyone to buy. Other types of TV shows, just blogs, ranging from very boring ones where a person just sits in their chair and reads their quite scientific paper for one or two hours. People watch it. Two very entertaining, very fast-moving people who might be described as influencers, internet celebrities-style individuals who adopted this style of spreading content, who are present both on TikTok, Instagram, as well as on more text-based platforms such as Facebook, though they've been gradually deplatformed. But again, we don't really look much into this pre-COVID era in terms of volume, in terms of dynamics, uh, I'm afraid not. And uh, regarding states, foreign states, I don't think we've seen anything anything related to that uh, before COVID. In one of your papers, you distinguished between conspiracy communities and political communities. I think you really rightly distinguished two main types of origins of conspiracy thinking communities. One of them, one of these types, is more established that operates within the boundaries, almost close to sort of mainstream discussion, thinking and social ideas. For instance, they normally do not emphasize outrageously conspiratorial ideas. To the contrary, they very often just uh, emphasize importance of things like freedom of choice when it comes to vaccination, for instance, censorship and freedom of speech 
regarding policies of some digital media platforms and mainstream media that feature or not decide to feature or not those communities. Uh, they emphasize the more positive agenda. They, they registered as NGOs, as charities in the UK or other similar statuses in other countries. So they, they, they kind of establish they exist within sort of mainstream society. But other type, this is this type of hidden, less visible, more aggressive, but also more active communities that very often consist of semi-anonymous people or pseudonymous. They don't reveal their names sometimes. Uh, they might have many accounts on social media on the same platform. In terms of their narratives, they might apply all type of quite harsh conspiratorial ideas, like I mentioned about COVID and the control and the vaccination and control and chipping. Or uh, another <laughs> great example is 5G network that been linked by those communities to spread of COVID and so on. Uh, so those communities sort of they exist in small what been often called echo chambers. They've been isolated on the internet. Sometimes it's not easy to find them, but if you're not what you're looking for, you can find them using hashtag using keywords, not recent vaccination, but very specific keywords. And once you found them, you, well, you, people who are interested, they can find many people who would share their ideas. So yeah, I mean, there are those two types. That's what we, I think, been looking at. We are mostly looking at those second type. At least I am more interested in second type because how they spread information is most curious. We don't really know yet how they emerge, how they spread, why they're so successful sometimes, and sometimes even influential in mainstream politics. Is there a way to know from your data how prominent these communities are? Yes, there is a way. There is a way to see how prominent, but it's very approximate. We calculate two measures. One is engagement. Another one is audience. Audience is all people who can potentially see content engagement is what is the level of engaging with content by this community, by this website, by this provider of information on specific platform in form of comments, likes, shares, and all type of other sort of clicks and movements people might do when they see a piece of content. It's been also changing over time, and recently they kind of, they decreased their audiences on, on mainstream media, social media, because platform took steps to somehow remove them, some of them. But when it comes to engagement, people like to engage with this type of content, similarly to political misinformation as well, because it's more sensational. Do we know why people like this kind of information? Yeah, there's some research, but it's not conclusive. So there are many reasons. One of them is the way it's written, the way the story is told. And those stories often told in a similar way as like Daily Mail, this type of paper, sound papers, uh, how they tell stories sensationally. Second reason is very often people already have predisposed ideas, biases, and they search for confirmation of their biases and their ideas, and they find them on those platforms. And anti-vax community is a great example of this type enhanced and elevated engagement levels compared to people who share the idea that they, that vaccination is in general a good idea, good program, good policy. So those people who share this kind of good policy thinking about vaccination, they, what they think about vaccination very often is they don't really think much. In fact, they don't know much. So they don't really follow. They don't try to find confirmation of their thinking about that because they just come and feel safe and feel no need in being worried about. But there are certain 
categories of people. Either they believe they've been affected by a vaccination program, so maybe who have or expect children, who know someone who's been affected by vaccination negatively as they believe. Those people might be looking for more information, might be looking for communities, for ideas, for places to share their grievances or their beliefs or their biases very often. And they found those. They find that content, they find that uh, communities where this content shared, and that's why perhaps one of the reasons why people uh, like it more often, share it more often, because sort of they are driven by ideas, they are driven by identity. One of their identities is this either uh, kind of uh, freedom of choice, freedom of speech identity, what is quite kind of popular across certain U.S. Uh, categories in population. And when it comes to Western Europe, perhaps just worried about health consequences. This is what reinforces uh, those high engagement levels quite often. On that note, you mentioned in the beginning that your research also concerns how leaders make money. Do you have any preliminary insights? Do they use Patreon? Do they use PayPal? Do they have some calls for action? How does it work? Yeah, so donation. Donation is the main way to make money to monetize content that might be described as anti-vaccination content. PayPal, indeed, is one of the key instruments to collect donations very easy. Is it to connect? Is it to link? Is it to send funds? Other way, well, they range there. We found, I think, around 13 different types of monetization, ranging from this very simple donation to selling education courses or selling access to legal service that might help you to, for instance, sue the government for alleged damage to your health that a person or a community might link to a vaccination program. So many, many different ways to make money. People make money using cryptocurrency. I mean, uh, donating and exchanging money using that sort of hidden instrument that's kind of growing now for those communities to avoid perhaps certain attention. Selling information products uh, selling access to webinars, recently also important. There are festivals, there are kind of whole sort of several days events, especially before pandemic, for anti-vax believers. So, yeah, yeah, there is quite a lot of uh, ways. Do you see corona anti-vaxxers having the same goal of financial gain? Mm. So, you see, as we're looking at communities or individuals, many of whom established themselves before pandemic, I would say it's vice versa. They just employed and now emphasize this topic of COVID, yes, rather than other way around. So they might discuss extensively the idea, for instance, that vaccination, vaccine is damaging to people's DNA. They might spend a lot of time talking about that. And next, just like news organization, if a new thing arrives, for instance, um, someone died after taking vaccine, they would take this news and discuss it. So I would say they just follow the agenda, they follow the new stream rather than focus on COVID, COVID, COVID. So we don't really distinguish much in that respect. New emerged communities and old communities that existed before, I would say existed communities just been reinforced and get more followers perhaps and get more engagement, get more interest from broader public once pandemic started. So they benefited. It looks like they benefited from COVID-19 pandemic. Was it also translated into financial terms? Did they start creating more diverse income streams? Diverse, yeah, yeah, obviously diverse, yeah. As I mentioned, like many different 
ways to monetize. Some don't monetize at all. Many of those people, I think, they just use funding in order to sustain, to continue the advocacy. But some, they just make money through selling products, such as health remedies. There is prominent network of online shops that sell coconut oil. This network created many shops in different languages, and it also contains one small website that just features anti-vax ideas. It doesn't sell anything. It just says that vaccination is bad, and then it has a link to another website where products are sold. So their narrative is, look, vaccination is damaging to your health, but we have a cure, we have another way to maintain health, to get cured, or just to stay healthy, just go on our website, buy our coconut oil, be fine forever. Forget about vaccination. This is kind of this type of thinking we saw, we've seen several times when it comes to health products, or rather alternative health products. Do you think that these anti-vax communities that are being used right now to transport anti-vax messages, do you think that they could be used in the future to transport anti-democratic messages? Absolutely. They're all linked. I'm absolutely sure that COVID pandemic already has caused huge disruption to political and social systems across the world. We would see emergence of new types of political groups, political organizations uh, that would be more disruptive than what we previously called populists. They would be more potentially damaging to democracy because people would have huge level of satisfaction, uh, disillusionment, and this all might be transformed and, in fact, channeled by those newly emerged actors who would channel grievances of people using outrageous ideas and thoughts and narratives, and they would, some of them might try to attack political system. In fact, that just has happened in the U.S. I think events in D.C. are direct consequence of pandemic, this pandemic disruption and uh, this emergence of new types of political actors. And U.S. just uh, the first, the first case of it. And in fact, well, even beyond that, I think even in non-democratic countries, it's in an opposite uh, situation. In protests in Thailand and Belarus, I think they also somehow caused a link to this pandemic, but it's opposite effect, right? So all the elites being challenged by this pandemic. So would it be correct to say people have been radicalized by these ideas and maybe more willing to accept anti-democratic views? Each country's trajectory in terms of unemployment, say unemployment, whether there is any uh, unemployment programs, what is the level of support for people who lost job or who, who've been out of job for a long time. Obviously, it's, it's, there is a long-term link between economic troubles and populist ideas. But what I'm thinking, and it's, since I, I sort of, I started organization, political organization, I think what might happen, you asked me a question about COVID, right? COVID and the COVID-related groups and organizations and conspiracies that emerged during this period. I think that those groups uh, now just gained audience. And over time, they might be hijacked by different actors, not necessarily those people who established them. For instance, anti-vax groups might, with time, change, uh, say, the speaker, and they might be united around, mobilized around a different idea, some radical idea, some out, another outrageous conspiracy, like in the U.S., it was a conspiracy of stolen election, right? Similar thing can happen in Germany. Who knows what it can be? I have no idea, really. But it can be anything. The damage here, the potential damage, is the emergence of audiences that are united and echo chambers on internet, not necessarily on big platforms, but on 
alternative platforms like Telegram. And those committees are already there, and they're waiting for disruptive political actors to come and hijack them. That might happen. Not necessarily going to happen, but this is, I think, key damage, because those people are ready. They already have those grievances I mentioned. They might be channeled, channeled by populist speakers into whatever type of ideas possible. We'll add a transcript of this show to our website, www.theinoculation.com, if you prefer to uh, read about these things. If you want to hear more stories about vaccine hesitancy, you can look up The Inoculation wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, Inoculated. The link is in the show notes. You can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Our reporting is supported by Journalism Fund.eu, Media Lab Bayern, and Topfish Stiftung. Bye for now.